Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. For today's podcast, we'll again be hearing from Yehuda Ben-Shahar, Assistant Professor of Biology here at Washington University in St. Louis. Earlier this season, Ben-Shahar joined us in the episode Hardwired for Love to discuss his research into the genetics of courtship and mating behaviors in Drosophila melanogaster, better known as the fruit fly. Today we'll be hearing about a different project, dealing with a different insect, that helped determine the direction of his current research. We actually do some work with honeybees as well. And I did, my, my PhD thesis was actually almost all bees. One of the main projects I worked on was to look at how specific genes can affect behavior at different time scales. Let's pause here for a minute to talk about genetics and time scales. Ben Shahar's lab currently studies insect behavior on three different time scales physiological, developmental, and evolutionary. In our first episode with Ben Shahar, we mostly focused on the physiological timescale, how a single insect responds to a stimulus like food or a potential mate. The developmental timescale refers to a longer span of time, how behaviors change over the course of a single insect's lifetime. And the remaining timescale, evolutionary, deals with genetic and behavioral differences between individuals and species, differences that have developed through evolution. These timescales will come up again in a bit, but let's get back to Ben Shahar's doctoral research. Maybe a year after I started my PhD, there was a paper in Science, which is one of the premier scientific journals. The paper showed that there was a gene that they called foraging. That was the name of the gene because it turned out that the gene is affecting the decision-making of larvae of, or sort of their foraging strategy. So this paper, which focused on flies, not bees, revealed that the ways that fly larvae go about foraging or looking for food is affected by a certain gene. These fly larvae have fairly distinct approaches to getting their food, like people who prefer delivery or who prefer going out to eat. Among these flies, there are sitters and there are rovers. It turned out that in natural populations of flies, if you take a, a larva, a random wild-type larva, and you put it on a thin layer of yeast, which is what they like to eat, they start crawling around and they form these trails. And the investigator, her name is Marla Sokolovsky, she's at the University of Toronto, she discovered that there are two sort of main forms of that behavior in natural populations. So there are some larvae that you put them on the yeast and they just sort of, they, they crawl a little bit, but they kind of stay where you put them. And she called those cedars. And then there was another group that when she put them, they and it's not that they're looking for food, they're on food, so there's food everywhere. They still move a lot, and she called those rovers. It was clear that genetics influenced whether a fly was a sitter or a rover. So Sakalowski continued her research in order to determine how this worked exactly and why, from an adaptive standpoint, these behavioral differences occur at all. She was able in the end to find that there was a what they call single major gene, meaning that there's a variation, genetic variation in a specific locus in the fly genome that if you had two copies of one version of it, you'll behave as a rover. If there are two copies of the other version of that specific protein, you'll, you'll behave like a cedar. Now to understand how Sakolowski's paper on flies relates to Ben Shahar's doctoral research on bees, first we need to learn a bit about the behavior of honeybees. For starters, honeybees are obligatory social animals. 
meaning they have to live in groups in order to survive. And the social behaviors that take place within these groups, or colonies, are quite complex. Honeybees, what's cool about them is their behavior. I mean, you know, most people are familiar with honey, maybe pollination, but from a scientific point of view, they're also a great model to understand social behaviors. There are no sort of free-living single bees in nature, honeybees. There are other species that have these kind of lifestyles, but the specific species that we have here in this country that we are familiar with, you know, in terms of honey and pollination, these are what we call obligatory social animals. So they only live in colonies. The majority of the animals are sterile. They, they are non-reproductives. There's only one queen and then a lot of workers that are also females, but non-reproductive females. And they do all these different jobs. And it turned out, and people have known now for a long time, that these colonies are highly organized. They're sort of like a very oiled machine. They constantly, as a group, they optimize what we call division of labor, you know, who's doing what to optimize their survival, I guess, as a colony. So, so everybody does what they're doing, not for sort of their own sake, but for the colony. And it turned out that, you know, what specific bees choose to do is not random. It, it's actually this constant social interactions coupled with sort of innate, what we call the behavioral developmental process. This brings us back to the discussion of timescales. Remember, the developmental timescale deals with changes in behavior over the lifetime of an organism. For example, in the well-oiled machine of a honeybee colony, an individual adult bee does not do the same job for its entire life. They actually go through this, what we call age-dependent division of labor. They always start with one type of a task, and as they get older, they sort of slowly switch. But it's plastic, so the rate of how they switch and when they switch, and sometimes even reverse that sort of progression depends on, on their interactions with other colony members. And so as a colony, you constantly optimize your workforce, basically. So this was, in general, a process we were studying, trying to understand how does it work? How did it evolve? What kind of genes are involved in the decision of single bees to nurse larvae or go outside and start being a forager? We were interested really in that specific process, which is at a given time point in their development, how do they decide to stop doing task X and start doing task Y? So Ben Shahar wanted to determine why bees throughout the course of their lifetimes either decide to sit in the colony and nurse larvae or to rove around foraging for food. If you're thinking that this is starting to sound a bit like Sokolowski's paper on flies, you're not the only one to make the connection. So when that paper came, it was just about the time where so the field of honeybee biology was kind of moving towards trying to start using molecular tools. So there was already some work going on and actually sequencing the genome of, of the honeybee. And so when that paper from Marla Sokolovsky's lab came out, it turned out that the gene that controls these two, it's a protein that does like an enzymatic reaction, very specific enzymatic reaction in cells. It's very ubiquitous. It's probably in all cells. There are versions of that in all animals. And we were able to find it in the bee as well. And so one of the ideas that we start thinking is, in the case of flies, there's a two different forms of the gene, and they determine whether you act like a rover or a sitter. And so this, this is what we call an evolutionary timescale, because these are fixed differences. They're DNA-level differences, and you you only behave as either a seed or a rover because your gene is telling you in a very simplistic way. 
in the B, what we see is, like, remember I told you, they, they go through these different tasks as they age. So there's sort of plasticity during the lifetime of a single individual. And the parallels that we sort of made in a very loose way were, okay, if you think about sitters, you put them on food, there's food everywhere. They just sit around and they basically eat what's around them. They don't spend a lot of energy crawling around. And so if we thought about bees, bees, when they start, they emerge as an adult in a colony that usually already has a lot of honey, a lot of food there. You know, so in contrast to an animal that has to go outside and start looking for food, they have food right there that their sisters brought in. They don't go to the, actively to the environment and look for food. In contrast, foragers, which are the bees that actually come in and out, again, there is food in the colony. They're under exactly the same environment as these nurses that take care of, of the brood but never leave the, the colony. So they're actually physically or individually, they shouldn't be hungry. They still go out and bring food in. So there's a compulsive urge to constantly go out and bring more food and more food and more food. So what changes? Why, you know, why some bees early on, they just stay in and eat whatever is there, but they never actively get involved in that process. And some bees suddenly they get to a certain age and suddenly all they do is they stop doing other tasks and all they do is to go out in and out, in and out, in and out bringing food. And so since we found some, like I said, some analogies with what, what's going on in the fly, we said, what if we sort of looked at, at the nurse bees as sort of like a cedar version and the forager bee as a rover version? Can we see a changes in the, in the signaling of that the same gene that we now know is sort of fixed version in the evolutionary timescale in the fly, is that gene maybe changing temporarily as bees switch? And that's what we basically found. That so in the bee it was more sort of a developmental time scale, and in the fly it's sort of more evolutionary fixed time scale. Just to reiterate that last point, the same type of gene that works on an evolutionary time scale in the fly, meaning the gene is fixed and in part determines the behavior, works on a developmental time scale in the bee. Depending on other factors, a bee can switch between being a rover and sitter throughout the course of its life. But of course, things aren't quite that simple. It doesn't mean that a gene doesn't do things in the fly at other timescales, the same exact gene, because the gene still can go up and down, express in different tissues at different times, things like that. But what we found is that the same gene in different species was, were sort of affecting analogous behaviors in sort of a predictive way, and that was sort of like the, the cool part of it. It was at least in part this project with honeybees that sparked Ben Chahar's continued interest in how genetics affect social behavior in insects. His lab still does some work with honeybees today, but as we heard when we first talked with Ben Shahar, for the most part, he and his students focus on flies. The reason? There's no comparison between what you can do with flies relative to bees, and that's sort of part of the decision why I ended up focusing more on fly behavior now than bee behavior. So bees have much, they're very smart for an insect. They can do all kind of cool things that sometimes mice and rats find hard to do. They do a lot of really unique things that are very interesting, but the ability to, to really dissect it at the mechanistic level is very, very difficult. Many thanks, once again, to Yehuda Ben-Shahar for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his laboratory and faculty pages on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.art.art.wustl.edu. Dot dot